A couple of things, real quickly, before I introduce our speaker this morning, I just I, I need you to pay close attention to this next statement. Four weeks ago, I stood up here and I said, it will not rain on the corn roasts. You need to listen to what the pastor says when he tells you things. What a great day we had yesterday. What a great evening we had. Uh, many of you were there. Uh, my thanks, uh, Hannah, I don't believe it's in this service, but Hannah has a team that she oversees. So many different people jump in and make it happen. Roasting corn, picking corn. Uh, people give up their whole day to go and just make things happen from moving, removing trash to parking cars. Uh, my thanks to everyone that has made that happen. And our thanks to the Chamberlains. We thank them in the first service, but yes, by all means. You know, it's a lot of work that goes in for a small group of people to serve about 2,000 or more people. And my thanks to everyone who does that. It's such a great night just to be there. No great program in place, just to be there together. And it really was a, a great night together. Now, if you were there uh, last night, you saw helicopter rides. Some of you will know and remember that we've had a long relationship with an organization called JARS, Jungle Aviation and Radio Services. And JARS is a group, a missions group that serves, that provides air services and radio services to missionaries around the world. Uh, not just a group of missionaries, but uh, make their services available to multiple groups. I've been aware of JARS since I was a kid, because I grew up in a church and part of the Christian Missionary Alliance. We have missionaries around the world, and many of those missionaries would get into remote areas and get services provided to them by JARS. And we've had a long relationship with them, and we're so glad that every other corn roast, they come up give rides here being a part of the church, and we're so glad to have them with us this weekend. And many of you got, got a chance to take a helicopter ride. I don't know how it's going to go today, weather permitting it happens again today, but we had a great day yesterday. We'll just be thankful for that, and we'll take whatever happens today as a bonus. But I want to introduce our speaker this morning. Uh, his name is Steve Russell. Steve is the president of JARS. Uh, he's been president for a little bit under a year, and we're so happy to have him here. If you've ever looked at his resume or knowing about him. Uh, he's gifted for leadership. He served in the military as lieutenant colonel. Uh, he has served in the state senate for the state of Oklahoma. He served in Washington, D.C. as a congressman from the state of Oklahoma as well. And all the time that he's done all of those things and other things serving in different churches, he's done all of that while serving and following his first love, which has been Jesus Christ and his church. And he now serves as president of JARS, and we are so glad to have him here. And I have got good news for you. In the first service, I hadn't heard him speak before. And most of the JARS team, I don't know if there's any team members here still. Any JARS team members in this service? Because most are here at the first service, and they've gone to get ready uh, for the afternoon. But the whole team is here. And so I, I pulled the team aside, and I said, listen, I've never heard your president preach. And if he bombs in the first service, one of you are stepping up in the second service. <laughs> I notice they're not here. That's either a vote of confidence or they're, or they're all cowards. One of the two, I don't know. Good news is I heard him speak in the first service, and they are all free to go. Steve, please come and share your heart. Would you welcome Steve Russell? Thank you, Pastor. Appreciate it. Thank you. Well, good morning, and uh, thanks, Pastor Scott, for uh, sharing your pulpit this morning. And thank you for the community uh, for your continued support to Jungle Aviation and Relay Service, JARS, uh, for over two decades. We're, we're very grateful for that. 
We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which were prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He was aroused from his sleep. What was all the commotion? He went outside draping a linen sheet uh, over him to cover himself, and in the light of many lanterns and torches, he saw swords and clubs, soldiers. There seemed to be a mix of Jewish temple soldiers with Roman auxiliaries. Following along to try to see what was going on, he noticed what looked like scribes and Pharisees and even the chief priests. The Roman officer and officers of the Jews had a man bound. They were leading him away. As he tried to draw near to see who it was, he saw it was Jesus. No one else was with him. Suddenly, the soldiers grabbed him. Who was this kid out here in the middle of the night trying to spy on them? The lad wriggled away with quick reflexes, and they caught hold of his linen sheet. But before they could draw him in, he dropped it. And he ran off terrified and naked. The crowd of soldiers and officials pressed on. They took Jesus to stand before the Jewish high priest and the Jewish religious council. They leveled conflicting and false accusations against him. Losing patience, the high priest tore his expensive garments in a rage. The angry council said that he should die. Spit began to fly. They covered Jesus' face so he could not see them as they beat him. The night moved quickly. Jesus was roughly handled and taken from there to the fortress Antonia to find the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Pilate told them to take him to Herod Antipas since Jesus was a Galilean. After more exhausting night travels, beatings, and rough handling, he was brought back to Pilate after a severe Roman scourging of whips, while lashed to a post, Christ was ready to be released. The mob shouted for Pilate to crucify him. By 9 a.m., Jesus was hanging above the city dump, nailed to a cross, with criminals on his left and right. By three in the afternoon, the Savior of the world was dead. More than a dozen years had passed. The boy who fled was now a man who assisted and served his mother named Mary. They had a Levite heritage, and the idea of service was inherent to them. He was familiar with many scriptures as well. We don't have a record of what happened to his father. He may have been Greek and his mother Jewish, like another young man he would meet someday named Timothy. They lived in a house in Jerusalem. The house was well known to believers as they served and hosted prayer and worship. And Simon Peter was a regular guest, teaching many the gospel and sharing his personal stories about the Savior, his resurrection a few days after the boy saw him, and redemption through his work on the cross. Peter's influence on the young man was immense. It was because of Peter that he and his mother had become Christians. Things were rough for Christian believers at this time. 
Even though the church had grown into the tens of thousands after Stephen had been stoned, there was constant threat of persecution. Herod Agrippa, the nephew of Herod Antipas and now his successor, was trying to incur favor from both the Romans and the Jews after they had soured on him due to his thoughtless public comments and his many deaths. He attempted favor by persecutions against the followers of Jesus. Peter had come back to Jerusalem from his trip to Joppa and fascinated other believers with stories about what, was, what God was doing to the non-Jewish believers, the Gentiles. It was clear the Holy Spirit was saving not just Jews, but also Gentiles. He told them about the Roman centurion in Caesarea who had been dramatically converted to Christ and about a vision that God had given him and about how the gospel should go to all people. Based upon this report and upon uh, the report of many Gentiles that were coming to believe in Christ in other places such as Cyprus, Phoenicia, and Antioch, the young man's cousin, also a Levite named Barnabas, who also owned land and grew up in Cyprus, decided to go to Antioch with the blessing of Peter, James, and the other apostles in the Jerusalem church. Once there, after convincing others to trust a Pharisee named Saul, who had zealously led the persecution against Christians, but was now a Christian himself, Barnabas spent a whole year in Antioch with Saul, telling people how they could reconcile their lives to God through his son, Jesus Christ. Christians back in Jerusalem were hit pretty hard. A famine spread throughout much of the Roman Empire at that time, and they were cut off from many means of relief and support within the Jewish system because of their belief in Christ. Barnabas and Saul collected aid from many Gentile Christians and decided to bring it to Jerusalem. The believers in Mary's house were fascinated by their tales and grateful for the provision. Hope and excitement of the gospel spreading and God's provision were soon overshadowed by a horrible tragedy. Agrippa had turned violent against the Christians, and he brazenly attacked the church during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. James, the brother of John and lifelong friend of Peter and Andrew, had been seized and executed by the sword for some supposed blasphemy at the order of Agrippa. Worse, as word of this was being discussed, report came to Mary's house that now Peter himself had been seized and was going to be executed the next morning at Passover. Memories flooded back to the young man. This was just like 14 years ago. Soldiers in the streets seizing Christ to lead him to his death during Passover. They even tried to seize him when he was looking to see what the commotion was then. Now they were tracking down James and Peter and John and the others. They might even come to his house since the apostles often came there. Believers all over Jerusalem began to earnestly pray. Mary's house was full of believers. The young man helped his mother tend to the prayer vigil and Rhoda, a family servant, made sure that they had what they needed. Rhoda served the guests. There were a lot of people there. Mary sure needed help. Out in the courtyard, tending to her duties, Rhoda heard a knock and then a low voice. 
It was Peter's voice. It's impossible. But instead of letting him in, she ran full of joy to tell the guests. The young man thought he heard her say that Peter was at the gate. You're out of your mind, they said. No, she insisted. It is his angel, they said in disbelief. So much for that prayer visual for Peter's release. They decided to look. Maybe it was a trick. No trick. They were amazed. They didn't know how, but there was Peter. He described to them how an angel told him to get up quickly, and the chains fell off of his hands. Then the angel told him to dress and put on his sandals. Then he told him to wrap his cloak around himself and follow him. It didn't seem real. He thought it was a vision, but he followed them anyway, stepping over the guards that were with him. They walked right past two other sets of guards. The gate just opened. They entered the street. The angel disappeared. Then Peter realized where he was, and he came to the house of Mary. They couldn't believe what they were seeing. They couldn't believe what they were hearing. God was answering their prayers. Praise God. An angel delivered him from the chains and guards and prison. Report these things to James and the brethren, Peter told them. Then Peter got up to leave. He didn't say to where. Thank God he was safe. Jesus' half-brother James would be glad to hear it. The whole church would. Soon, they might get everyone coordinated and back together. But at least Peter was safe. Turns out he had gone to Caesarea to spend some time there. The young man's cousin Barnabas introduced him to Saul, also known now as Paul. They were wanting to go back to Antioch, and Barnabas suggested that they take his young cousin, John Mark, with them. Paul readily agreed. Mark, his Greek name, met all kinds of believers in Antioch. There was even a man named Menaean who was a lifelong friend of Herod Antipas. And he was amazed at how God was moving through the Gentiles and also other Hellenistic Jews like himself. He had no problems with language. Mark didn't. He was fluent in Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, Latin. It was clear that God was doing an amazing work in his life. How awesome it would be to be a part of it. They fasted a while, and everybody prayed over them. What would happen? He didn't know. He wasn't sure about Paul. He remembered him from the persecutions in, in Jerusalem and how so many were killed and imprisoned by his hand. Was it a trap? He didn't think so because what Paul was doing now would cost him his own life. Still, it did seem a little dangerous. He felt some measure of comfort knowing his older cousin Barnabas was with him. And Barnabas told him that they planned to go to Cyprus first. And that was good. Mark had been there before. That was Barnabas' home. They boarded a ship 16 miles away from Antioch at Seleucia, and they sailed for Cyprus. They landed at the port of Salamis on the island of Cyprus and began to work in the synagogue proclaiming the word of God. They went all over the island. They arrived at Paphos, which was the capital, and there were the Romans. Mark would not forget what happened. 
Paul and Barnabas managed to get an audience with the Roman proconsul, the head of the island, Sergius Paulus, a man of great intelligence. He was curious about this word of God that they were proclaiming. But then there was this guy named Elimus. Boy, was that guy evil. He was all into the occult. And worse, he was even a Jew whose Jewish name was Bar-Jesus. No sooner had Barnabas and Paul made some progress with the Roman governor when Elamis opposed them and tried to turn the Romans against them. Paul, filled with the Spirit, stared him right in the eye. And he said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and fraud, will you not stop making crooked the straight plans, or paths of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see even the sun for a time. Elamis immediately went blind, being in complete darkness, and he stumbled about pathetically asking for people to help him and lead him by the hand. Sergius Paulus was astonished, and so was everyone else. The Roman proconsul, a man of considerable position and rank in the Roman Empire, upon seeing this and hearing the teaching of the Lord, gave his life to Christ. It was a time of rejoicing, but what came next was pretty troubling to Mark. Barnabas said Paul's plan was to go to Perga in Pamphylia and then on to Iconium. It appeared to him that Barnabas wasn't the leader anymore. When they left, it was Barnabas and Saul. Now it was Paul and his companions. Worse, Paul was set on going to Iconium. The Jews were already angry at Paul for becoming a Christian. Now they wanted him out of their lives, and some even wanted him dead. Mark didn't sign up for that. He was young. He wasn't even married. Sure, he wanted to help, but maybe he could be helpful back at the big church in Jerusalem. He had a decision to make. He knew he couldn't talk to Paul about it because he knew what that answer would be. If he talked to Barnabas, he would be kind. He would just try to encourage him to hang in there and that sort of thing. Maybe this wasn't what God was calling him to do after all. Maybe this was really Barnabas' idea that he thought that he would like it and it would be some exciting adventure or something new. And he had a foreboding. Sure, God was doing amazing things, but now he wasn't so sure that this was God's plan for him. Whatever the reasoning of Mark, and we may never know, the young man took counsel of his fears. He took the first obstacles as a sign that God must have something else in store. Worse, he, he couldn't muster the courage to even tell his cousin Barnabas. He withdrew from them instead. Once he decided to take a step back rather than a step forward, it became easier. He retreated from the work at hand, questioning what God had called him to, and he went back home to Jerusalem. To say that Paul and Barnabas were surprised was an understatement. This boy had been raised on service. 
in the heritage of the Levites. He sat at Peter's feet. He had met so many whose lives had given firsthand testimony of God's salvation, deliverance, and provision. He had such promise and potential. What happened? What happened to him? From Paul's perspective, he took counsel of his fears. He quit. Paul, who had never quit anything in his life and had an unmatched zeal and drive from his youth, called him a deserter. He was. Back in Jerusalem, reports trickled in from the church at large about the rest of Barnabas and Paul's missionary journey. Although perhaps feeling guilty, it was just as Mark had imagined. At Pamphylia, Paul and Barnabas met stiff resistance. True, many Gentiles and even Jews had come to Christ, but the whole city turned out in massive crowds. The Jews there began to taunt them and contradict them publicly. Still unable to stop the duo, the Jews stirred up the women of influence to pressure the leading men of the city. Paul and Barnabas were driven not just out of the city, but the entire district, having to flee from persecution. As bad as that was, it was even worse for them at Iconium. While great numbers of people believed the Jews and Gentiles, along with the city officials, attempted to stone them, they succeeded. They had to flee Lystra. At Lystra, even after many believed and saw miraculous healing of a lame man, the people rose up against them in a more successful stoning. Paul was knocked out. Certain that he was dead, they drug him from the city and dumped him outside the gate. Somehow, he wasn't dead. Gaining consciousness, he and Barnabas went on to Derby. And if that danger was not enough, they decided to retrace their steps through all of those hostile places that they had just been to encourage the believers that had been made. Were they out of their minds? No. They were answering God's call, wherever it led. They inspired the new believers by telling them to continue in the faith. That through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And after such encouragements, they made their way back to Antioch. And once at Antioch, they were astonished to see the errant teachings of Jewish Christians during that time that they had been gone. These Jewish Christian teachers were teaching Gentile believers that they had to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses or they couldn't be saved. And that was more than Paul and Barnabas could take. And after no small dissension had risen in the ranks, they dealt with these errant teachers. And the Antioch church commissioned Paul and Barnabas to go to the church at Jerusalem report to Peter and the other apostles in a council and work out among the Gentiles and also address these errant teachings head on so that the church could be unified. The council determined that the Gentile believers shouldn't trouble themselves about those issues and instead declared that all believers should sustain from sexual immorality and things associated with idolatry that may offend the Jewish believers. The church was pleased with that outcome. Now, there could be unity in the church. 
The Jerusalem church in turn sent a delegation to Antioch that included Judas and Silas to report back to back the same things as Paul and Barnabas returned there. Among those in Jerusalem, the believers making this uh, trip with them uh, to Antioch was Mark. Mark. It had been two years since Mark had deserted. Racked with guilt, he wanted to be restored. He wanted to ask forgiveness of Barnabas and Paul. So working faithfully in Jerusalem and closely with Peter, he hoped somehow he could make things right. As Judas and Silas were preparing to return back to Jerusalem, Paul suggested that he and Barnabas go revisit the many cities from their earlier journey and even those that they had missed. Open to the journey, Barnabas saw a chance here. He saw Mark's sincerity, and discussions no doubt had occurred between them. He suggested to Paul that the journey was a good idea and that he thought that they should take Mark to assist them. Paul didn't like it. He thought it best not to take somebody who had deserted them and not completed the work the last time. Barnabas insisted. Paul kept insisting it would not be so. The differing viewpoints turned into a sharp disagreement. They each had their views. Barnabas saw Mark's potential, training, language skills, sincerity. Paul saw his past performance, fearful nature. They were both right about Mark, but they couldn't agree. The sharp disagreement turned into a separation of these two close friends who had been bonded by life and death moments together on the field. Paul chose to substitute Silas instead the one sent by the Jerusalem church as their trusted agent. And they went with the Antioch church's commission to do the work in Syria and Cilicia. Barnabas sailed to Cyprus and took Mark with him. We don't know exactly what Mark did after his trip to Cyprus with Barnabas. He was probably in his late 20s or early 30s at that time. Paul and Silas went to Troas, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, and Corinth, where he would be used by God to found major churches among the Greek Gentiles. And he would again depart on another journey, his third, and spend much time at Ephesus while also revisiting the churches in Greece and Asia Minor. By the time Paul returned for another visit to Jerusalem against the counsel of his brothers and sisters in Christ, he ends up being imprisoned by the Romans in an appeal to Caesar to settle the dispute in which the Jews had accused him. Paul was taken to Rome. It had been a decade since Paul had refused to take Mark on his journey. But something happened along the way. Paul wrote the letters to the Philippians, the Ephesians, the Colossians, and even to Philemon. To the church at Colossae, he wrote, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner greet you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, 
who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. When writing to Philemon, he wrote as if Mark was already known to that household of the Gentiles. Mark had not only been doing the work in Jerusalem with the apostles and deepening his lifetime friendship with Peter, but he also had been doing work in Asia Minor and even at the church in Rome. Always with a tender and servant heart, he was marked as one who was a comfort to Paul while he was in prison. When Paul was released from prison the first time in Rome, we see the apostle Peter also make his way to the Roman church. In 1 Peter 5.13, Peter signed off his letter saying, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. The she was the church. Babylon was a code name for Rome. Peter was telling the people all over Asia Minor that the Roman Christians, who were also chosen, were greeting them. And so did Mark, his son. Not only was Mark known to the people of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, but Peter calls him his son, usually a term for a spiritual son, one who has been discipled or brought to Christ by somebody older. We see a similar language in Philippians 2.22, where Paul says, But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. So what happened? What happened? It had been some 35 years since the boy had run terrified down the streets in Jerusalem. More than 20 years had passed since his desertion of Paul and Barnabas. And now he was with Paul comforting him at a Roman prison in the capital of the Roman Empire. He labored with Peter in Rome, encouraging Christians to stand with him in firm faith, in peace, as Nero focused his rage against Christians. When Paul was imprisoned a second time and under the circumstances and persecutions of Nero, he would soon be condemned to death. We find Paul sending out his last request to Timothy. Paul writes, get Mark, bring him with you. He's very useful to me for ministry. Timothy was in Ephesus facing struggles there and was somewhat down and depressed about what was going on. Paul sent Mark to encourage him. Now that his days were numbered, he wanted to see Timothy again and made sure to tell him to bring Mark with him. Mark had not just become a comfort to Paul as when he wrote to the Colossians, but now he was very useful to him in ministry. Mark. The scared boy, the young man that took counsel of his fears, the deserter who did not complete the work of God that he had been called to was now a light known through the early church in Rome, Asia Minor, Judea, known as Peter's son, Paul's very useful agent for ministry, the cousin of Barnabas. As amazing as it was to think that this man could be used so effectively in the lives of stalwarts such as Peter and Paul and to encourage so many to stand firm in their faith in the early church, the most amazing task and impact of his life had not even begun yet for this middle-aged man. 
After Paul was executed sometime around 67 AD by Nero, Mark had already been recording much of the preaching of Peter as he gave exciting recounting of the gospel to his Roman Christian friends. These were firsthand accounts. Fluent in languages, acquainted with all the apostles, firm in his faith, he was now chosen for another task, not by an apostle or a church leader, but by the Holy Spirit himself. As persecution ravaged the early church and those that walked with Christ began to be martyred or died, there was a need to write down these firsthand accounts of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The apostles had already been circulating some letters of encouragement and instruction to the churches, but now there was a need for their stories to endure after these eyewitnesses were no longer going to be with them. Since most early Roman believers were not literate, rather than high society, the stories that could hold their attention and the recounting of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, could be read to new believers. Whether or not Mark was able to finish the gospel before Peter died is not known, but it was close to the same time frame, around 67 A.D., The early church fathers and historians tell us that some 70 years later, Mark was known as Peter's interpreter, and he wrote the book in Italy to capture the gospel as recounted chiefly by Peter. As the audience was Gentile and specifically Roman, there was no need for genealogies and Jewish heritages. Festivals were explained. Aramaic phrases known to Jews were translated. Times were given in Roman time. Phrases were given a Latin flair, even though the book was written in Greek for an even wider audience. This terrified boy, this deserter who took counsel of his fears and did not complete the work that called, that he'd been called to as a young man, this work continues to be a worldwide influence. His gospel gives us amazing, fast-paced accounts and emotional portraits of Christ and his humanity. For believers, our lives are touched by Mark's gospel almost daily in some form or fashion. The story of Mark's life on earth, it ends well. It almost didn't. But God can use flawed people. That's the only kind we are. There's an important lesson we can take from Mark's life. We can choose to take counsel of our fears, and it can take us out of God's plan. And most do. As we open this morning on the verse of Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created for good works in Christ Jesus which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We must note that the operative word in this verse is should. Should. Mark should not have taken counsel of his fears. He did. He should not have quit. He did. He should not have deserted and left the work of his calling incomplete. He did. But he also, in the eyes of man, never should have amounted to anything after that. He did. He should have never regained Paul's confidence and trust, 
but he did. He would not have been seen as one likely to be inspired by God to pen one of the four Gospels. He was. What about you? For our teenagers here this morning, are you afraid of how God might use you? Maybe it's just better to lay low and see what develops. Maybe that passion or drive God is giving you to serve him is just a dream, and he won't really ask you to serve him. It's not just some dream. He will serve you, or you will serve him, and you can serve him. The question for you is, will you answer God's call to what? To the works that Christ has already prepared. They're already there. Proverbs 16, 9 tells us the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. God wants us to plan. He wants us to dream. He wants us to have passions. It's part of the creative nature that God gave us when he made us in his image. But plans aren't steps. When God gives us the heart for something, we should step into it. When he directs a step that is slightly different than the path that we were heading, we should pay attention to that. How do we know what those steps look like? Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We know by staying in his word. It is the word, the word, the word. As decisions come our way, he uses his truths, his precepts, and his wisdom to direct that next step. Proverbs 4, 7 says, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. And whatever you do, get insight. I love that. The beginning of wisdom is this, get it. Get it. Just go get it. To get wisdom, you have to go get the get. That implies movement. That implies taking another step to truly seek God's direction. He'll throw light on that path as you go. For you young adults, it's no different. But here's the problem. Just like Mark, we see a slightly different path thrown our way, and it doesn't quite match up with what we thought. So rather than taking the next step, we deceive ourselves and take counsel of our fears. When I was a young man, I said, God, I'm going to do this. Would you please bless it? I don't pray that in heaven in decades now. I'm like, God, where are you working in this that I should go? So rather than taking the next step, we deceive ourselves and take counsel of our fears. And rather than recognizing that God was trying to guide us and move us in a direction, we throw up our hands and say, well... I guess God didn't want me to do that after all. We hold on to our plans, but they're not ours. We are his workmanship, created for good works in Christ. And when it becomes clear that our view of the end point is no longer possible, we quit. We take counsel of our fears, and we desert. When we do, there is not only a lost decade or decades, but we affect those around us. Young men, when you take counsel of your fears and quit, you're going to affect your young wives, if you have them, or your future ones, your young children, 
Young women, when you can't see a way forward and begin to sow that doubt in your husband's heart, it has an impact that can take both of you off God's path. But note, I said God's path, not ours. I've lived multiple chapters of an incredible life up to this point, and I'm excited about whatever chapters God still has in store for me. I want to be a meteor that streaks across the sky and just flames out at the end. Our own forward momentum will always create opportunity. I've seen it in a military career in the infantry where God used an average-sized man from Dell City, Oklahoma to help take down a dictator. And I've seen it in politics where he used a newcomer with no previous legislative or government experience to be elevated to high office in Congress. I've seen it in business, in pastoring, in flying, in every endeavor that he directs. But the operative word is should. We should walk in those works. Like Mark, we can take counsel of our fears and we can choose to quit, we can desert, we can ruin our reputation. Worse than that, we can just bumble through life taking no risks at all and never see what God intended for us to do in his kingdom as he is drawing others to himself and might use us to do it. Then we become older, we might become cynical, or worse, bitter, depressed, But we're still drawing breath, so we should ask ourselves, why? Because he still has work for us to do. We don't know that end date. There's something he still wants us to walk in. And for those of you that are middle-aged or older, maybe this hits a little close. Yeah, there was that time, but you didn't go get the get. You didn't let God establish the steps. You held on to some notion of a plan and then uh, convinced yourself that maybe that wasn't God's plan after all. Learn from Mark. God has an entire work that covers the entirety of your life, no matter how long that is, and you should walk in it. How will you know get the get when it comes to wisdom? It's not going to hit you on the head, nor is it going to fall in your lap. You got to go get it. You got to get the get. That's the beginning. Our own forward movement always creates opportunity, either on the path that we head to or intersecting with his will as we move. He reveals his plan in our lives and equips us for that work. Ephesians 3, 20, 21 tells us, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, him be the glory in the church. And in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, all generations, beyond all you can ask or think, his work prepared already that you should walk in it. So do the should. Get the get. Quit taking counsel of your fears. If you've deserted, seek the work. It's still there. Already prepared, do the should. Your families, your brothers and sisters in Christ, your lost neighbors, they all benefit. And God will be glorified. For those of you that do not know Christ at all, the first work he's called you to is your deliverance from sin. 
Get out of your lost condition. A mind without relationship with Christ is set on the flesh. The mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. It cannot please God. Romans 8 makes that very clear. You're not even capable of doing so because you don't know him. You're on the losing team eternally. No one can make you acceptable. You can't. No one else can. Only Jesus Christ dying on the cross to deliver you from death and sin can save you. And if you do not know him, you're already dead. It's just a matter of time. It is just how much ever time until that happens. But when you confess that you're a sinner, that you don't want to die eternally, that you need Christ's deliverance, he'll save you. Isaiah 45, 22 and 3, God warns us, turn to me, be saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. And Romans 5, 9 and 10 tells us, since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now are we reconciled. Shall we be saved by his life? Romans 10, 9 adds, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, delivered, no wrath, no eternal death, a new creature that moment, no matter what the past was, new in Christ with a new work that he has prepared beforehand that you should walk in it. And if you do not know Christ, don't delay that. Come and talk to Pastor Scott, me, somebody. Come and know him today while it's still called today. We're not guaranteed another. If you do know him, examine yourself. Are you walking in the should? Are you taking counsel of your fears? Have you already deserted? Doesn't matter. Whatever it is, seek him. Move. Get the get. Get wisdom. Walk in his path. Seek his work. It's out there. And it's beyond all you can ask or think. Let's pray. Let's stand. Gracious Father, we thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to whom we've been reconciled to you by his death, burial, and resurrection. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we are your workmanship, prepared for good works, that we should walk in them. Holy Spirit, thank you that you use us. God, that you call us to be ambassadors, making your appeal to others that you're drawing to yourself through us. May we be such people in the remainder of our lives. And we pray these things in the name of our mighty Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.